This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and in the virtual studio, we welcome back Stewie Richards from the wilds of Adelaide for the second week in a row. Thank you for having me. And for her Primal Screen debut, we are delighted to welcome Eloise Ross to the show. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Would you Would you prefer Dr. Elo- Eloise Ross or just <laughs> Eloise Ross? Yeah, Eloise is, Eloise is fine. fine. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Are you a Doctor Stewie? Yes, I am. Yeah, would you, would you prefer, yeah. like, just, you know, this is like a Doctor Who reunion. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, the 12 Doctors. Uh, we'll be spotlighting the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, currently screening online until July 15. We'll have a quick chat with filmmaker Ursula Woods, whose mockumentary short Clockumentary is screening in the festival's Australian Stories program. Then we'll check out three of the festival's diverse offerings. Helena Trestakova and Jakub Heiner's documentary about the life and work of master Czech director Milos Forman, Forman versus Forman. Then we'll untangle uh, filmmaker Eve Ash's complicated family history of Holocaust refugees and secret lives in The Man on the Bus. And then we'll be treated to a rich history of Pacific Islander and Taiwanese music in filmmaker Tim Cole's Small Island Big Song. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now it's time for the Primal Screen News Bulletin for the week. Some breaking news you might know from me, our slightly altered Primal Screen theme for this week. We have just lost the maestro. Uh, just a few hours ago, Ennio Morricone, the composer, whose haunting inventive scores expertly accentuated the simmering dialogue-free tension of the Spaghetti Westerns directed by Sergio Leone, has died aged 91. Uh, the Italian composer scored more than 500 films, apparently, uh, all, including all seven for Leone. Um, He died in Rome following complications from a fall last week in which he broke his femur. A native and lifelong resident of Rome whose first instrument was the trumpet, he won a long overdue Oscar at 87 for his work on Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight and was also nominated for his original scores for Terence Malick's Days of Heaven, Roland Joffe's The Mission, Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, Barry Levinson's Bugsy, and Giuseppe Tonatore's Malena. He also received an honorary Oscar in 2007 
and collected 11 David Di Donatello Awards, which is Italy's uh, highest film honours. We also bid farewell at this time last week to actor, comedian, writer and director Carl Reiner, who passed away at the mighty age of 98. Reiner leaves behind him an immeasurable legacy on the art of screen comedy, from his work with Sid Caesar in the early years of television writing Your Show of Shows, to creating, writing and producing the hugely influential Dick Van Dyke show, uh, to his work on the big screen, playing a huge part in making Steve Martin a star with the, their stellar four-run film of anarchic comedies from the late 70s and early 80s, The Jerk, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, The Man With Two Brains and All Of Me. Reiner's on-screen timing and improvisational skills were always phenomenal and those served him well as a writer and filmmaker. He leaves behind his three children, uh, playwright Annie, artist Lewis, and of course, actor-director Rob Reiner, who himself has had a huge impact of his own on the comedy landscape. Now, as we launch into our spotlight on the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, it's important to note that as well as the 27 feature films screening online at the festival, all the several Zoom masterclasses with documentary professionals, there are also over 60 short documentaries screening across nine short film programs, including four spotlights on Melbourne stories and two spotlights on Australian stories. One of the films selected for the Australian Stories 2 program is actually a mockumentary uh, called Clockumentary about a drummer obsessed with time whose pedantry annoys his much younger bandmates no end. The writer-director behind Clockumentary, Ursula Woods, very kindly joins us in the virtual studio for a short chat. Hey, Ursula, and welcome to Primal Screen. Hey, Paul, thanks for having me, and hello to all your Melbourne listeners. It's a pleasure. So what traumatic band experience compelled you to make a mockumentary on this subject? Are you a frustrated drummer or uh, or a band member frustrated by a drummer? Oh, Paul, I don't know if your program is long enough for that to answer that question um yeah I'm I come from a very musical family I have four brothers and I've played in lots of bands and I ended up marrying a musician as well and we run a recording studio at our house so documentary sort of wrote itself um (laughs) And I like to call it faction because it's a bit of fiction, but it's definitely based on facts and experiences. And there's lots of, you know, in jokes and things I've been writing down for years. So um, it's also really inspired by a a real drummer, my friend Corey, who's from uh, Ulverston, which is that town in Tasmania with... um, the giant clock. No, the giant clock. I don't want to offend anyone, but it's an awful looking clock. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so we were on our way to a gig one day and we went through Wilverston and we were having a big laugh in the car at the drummer. And it sort of <laughs> grew from there. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so what made you do this as a mockumentary rather than a regular comedic narrative? Besides the giant's shadow of Spinal Tap, of course. Uh, yeah, I, I loved Spinal Tap as a kid and uh, Anvil, which is actually oh, a documentary, yeah. but you thought it was a mockumentary and it's heartbreaking to realise it's actually a documentary in a way. Um, why did I do it like that? I suppose I just really wanted to play with the form. You know, I've been subject to watching every rockumentary under the sun and I just wanted to stick some musos on couches and get them to talk about their music and have a bit of a laugh at the form of a rockumentary in a way. 
and lots of things. I wanted to write the music. Well, my my partner wrote all the music. Wanted to have a bit of control that way. Um, yeah. So we were just kind of making fun of ourselves, really. And um, yeah, it's really fun experience. So the three the three band members are they actual are they an actual band other than the drummer? Um, no, I mean everybody's a musician, um, and Toggle, the main character, is also an actor. Um, but yeah, they're not an actual band, but they play different instruments. Like Ollie, who's on bass, he's actually a piano player, and he didn't have a clue what to do with the bass in his hand, but it kind of added to the to the comedy for me. Um, <laughs> And I told Louisa just to not say anything because, you know, I've been the keyboardist, the, the female keyboardist in many a band and wasn't allowed to say a word. So I told her just don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we were playing with stereotypes in a way. It's a very um, male sort of centric film in a way, even though it's written by me. I find humor in all those kind of subtleties, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an honour that it, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival accepted it because I wrote to them and said, would you accept a mock, you know? Mm. And they said, we accept all forms and we'd love to see what you have. So that was really great. Um, but it's up there alongside some incredible stories as part of the Australian stories too. I mean, the the other seven films were so spectacular and and I really felt I suppose as a musician um and someone who's really just I just see music in everything the mm. whole uh, Australian Stories 2 program just felt like a soundscape for me from the beginning to the end um there's jazz there's clockumentary which is sort of you know synthy art pop and then there's like indigenous song and really cool rhythms and it, it was just such an amazing musical watch um, and especially thinking about Maria Coney today, just everything is just so music-centric to me um, when it comes to film. So, yeah, if you're a musician, I think you'll enjoy <laughs> Australian stories too or, you know, everybody would enjoy it really. Ursula, you are like the Lebowski rug tying the room together. <laughs> just tied it all together so beautifully. Um, thank you. <laughs> So very much for joining us. So you can catch Ursula's short film, Clockumentary, as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival until July 15. Uh, just head to the festival website at mdff.org.au. Look for the Australian Stories 2 short film program, then follow the links to view the films on the Eventbrite platform. Thank you so much for your time for joining us, Ursula. Um, Clockumentary is a super fun movie and we're, yeah, and we're, really it's been really lovely to meet you thanks so much thanks everybody and i hope you enjoy the doco film fest it's an amazing way to connect with everything that's going on in the world at the moment and to just get some education and insights into stories so thanks thanks paul thanks everyone thanks ursula good night thanks ursula good night now uh listeners please join us on the couch for our first film from emerging as a key figure in the Czech New Wave in the mid-1960s to storming Hollywood and winning two Best Director Oscars. His experience with a totalitarian regime saw him develop a thematic concern with the conflict between an individual and institutions, which continued through his American films. 
At the same time, he never stopped searching for a place where he would feel free. A collage of rare private and official archives and autobiographical memories narrated by the filmmaker's son, Peter, Foreman versus Foreman outlines a life's journey, both cursed and blessed. Eloise, are you for Foreman versus Foreman or against? Or which Foreman are you for in this Foreman versus Foreman clash? And time just folded in on itself. Um, goodness me, I have to say I'm, for, well, I'm definitely for Foreman and perhaps for Foreman versus Foreman. I think, I mean, I really like this film maybe the most for making me want to see all of Foreman's films again. But secondly, I think what made me most engaged with this film was it's really quite brilliant selection of footage, I thought, archival footage and everything. Um, and his collection of insights and reflections, I wrote down a whole bunch of his quotes that he made throughout this film, maybe yeah. about 10 or so of them, that just fantastic lines that will stick with me. And I really enjoyed having that chance to kind of see into his, or, you know, hear parts of his um, opinions and see some insights into his life and into the way he saw the world uh, beyond his films. So that's it's kind of what made this work for me. Yeah, it's almost like a, a Tao of Foreman, isn't it? Like there's so many great, like a little booklet you can carry around with you uh, with, with, with Milos Foreman uh, quotes and witticisms. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my favourite or well, the first one I wrote down was that um, I guess he, as a response to his early life growing up um, in, uh, you know, amongst communism was that the biggest inspiration to him in his creative life was the reaction to boredom. <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty fantastic really it's great Stewie I loved it I thought it was a really great exploration of uh, his career but I also love how the documentary was constantly balancing between his career as a filmmaker and then also his tumultuous life growing up in Czechoslovakia and how both of those two worlds were constantly feeding and influencing the other. Um, and I too loved all the quotes. And I kind of love that the directors made their presence invisible and just let Foreman tell his own story. Uh, my favourite quote was, I don't need happy endings, I just need catharsis, uh, which I think is a really great way to talk about how we react and are affected by cinema. Yeah. Um, and the... The two directors did a pretty incredible job sort of matching up his own words with a lot of archival footage um, because often they're sort of their two very independent um, sources of media and they've managed to merge these two, the sound and the image here, um, to be quite sort of a, a very pleasant documentary. Yeah, I. Um, it, it's interesting because so many, like I... I was wondering at first whether uh, the directors had known him for years and were kind of following him around and had their own sort of footage and were doing this for years. And then through the credits, there are all of these documentaries and news programs that are credited. Mm. And it's kind of amazing how much of this has come from, you know, previously broadcast record, but how disarmingly frank he is in mm. all of these interviews that it feels like home movies. Mm. Like I think there, there is some personal stuff, like personal home movie stuff in there. But so much of just, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes because he's so honest and so um, funny and self-deprecating. 
Yeah, you're right, Paul. I found myself wondering, you know, I'm like, is he sitting there in the Chelsea Hotel, like this destitute guy, like filming him, like making a film diary? Is that just kind of his response to the world because he's a filmmaker? Um, or, you know, that's what I was thinking rather than were the filmmakers following him around. But, it, you know, if it came from somewhere else, then, I mean, it's no surprise that he's someone who is of interest to the world. Um, and has been for so long that mm. people will have been kind of interested in what he had to say and what was going on, where he came from and what he was offering um, for so many decades. Yeah, I just, I love the intimacy of this. And even like, um, and I felt it really painted a portrait of his self-effacing humour and self-doubt often as well, as well as his talent and obvious determination. Um it's it's very it's highly engaging, but I think a lot of it is because Milos himself is so engaging. Um, yeah, and I had the same uh, thought as you as well as well, um, Eloise. Like, yeah, just the lines, just so many. I love at one point he says that film um, he doesn't believe film should be should moralise that mm. that he doesn't believe film should be seen as a direct form of education. Like, film is something to inspire you to go out and and dig into something else rather than to, you know, the film itself as a teaching artifact, which I thought was was really cool. Um, a couple of things, uh, 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 let me know of a couple of things I never knew about. I never knew that he lived at the Chelsea Hotel for years, nor did I know that his four children were two sets of twins. Born That's crazy. Years apart. That's wild. Yeah. It's so wild. As wild it's- as Roger Federer, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I also had no idea the pressure they were under when they were filming Amadeus mm-hmm. uh, and just constantly um, being tracked by all of these watches. And I loved the bit when they had the photographs that were clearly taken by the watches um, for the state and how they had, like, numbered everyone and that, that level of surveillance I thought was really interesting. Well, the interview uh, footage you actually see where he's talking to, sitting at the table talking to the guy, and there's like two or three dudes in the background with sunglasses just mm, glittering right yeah. there in plain sight. One thing I wish, um, I wish there were years given throughout all of the footage and as it progressed, because mm. there were a few times when. I mean, this is probably just me being a bit of a noob, but I had to get IMDb up and look at the dates of the films and remind myself that when we were actually (laughs) were in the documentary and his life. So there was a few times when I I got a bit lost, I must say. So I kind of wish there were more dates and labels and information given on screen. Um, Yes, that was probably my only minor sort of critique of the film. But I just really loved this wash of Milos Forman. Yeah, that might have helped, Stewie. I feel like the strength of the film was that it was so brief. I mean, it's 80, 82 minutes maybe. Um, yeah. And it doesn't, I mean, it's not It's not really detailed in, in any way. It kind of just gives an overview and you get a lot of insight into him, but it's not super detailed. So it, it doesn't kind of, you know, um, do much more than it kind of, than it needs to, to invite you into his life and his films. And so... I think that that was part of the strength of this film. Um, it seemed like it gave a whole lot of information without, you know, taking up too much time and I guess allows people to maybe go and discover more. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I do love brevity. Uh, as listeners of this fan of uh, this show know, I am a great fan of brevity. But I've got to say, at seventy-seven minutes, and the fact that it doesn't cover the last decade, his last two or three films, that shocked me. I was quite and, shocked by that as well. But and, I was thinking about it, and the mm. entire time in the in the film, they're really driving home that he loves to end his film suddenly and unexpectedly. <laughs> So I thought that was a little bit meta there when it ended really quickly and you're like, what? That can't be it. <laughs> there's still two films left. Because <laughs> there's the, the excellent Man on the Moon from 1999, there's Glorious Ghost from 2006, and he made a film with his son in 2008 called A Walk Worthwhile. Um, and, yeah, just would have liked a little something on that. But I like him in theory, uh, Stewie. I like that a lot. Um, and I think you're right, uh, Eloise. I think it went, it goes a bit shallow on the films themselves and his experiences making them, but I like your point about it being kind of a primer on Foreman. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of going to, I'm going to bend to that. I'm going to retract that, <laughs> that criticism uh, about the, but they should have had all these films. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I feel like it's, it's formally a bit scattershot, not quite reflecting Foreman's own brilliantly controlled chaos, but otherwise I, I really dug it. Yeah, I, I wish there was more on his aesthetic. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that, was, that was one other thing I was looking for in the film. But I think Eloise is right. It's a really great primer for his films. And I think if anybody out there knows where I can find a copy of Taking Off, please direct me towards it. Uh, <laughs> Foreman versus Foreman is now available to rent on the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's website until July 15. Just head to mdff.org.au or mdff.org.au and follow the links to their event right viewing platform. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Eloise Ross, Stewie Richards, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Now, please join us by the computer, television, or dare I say smartphone of your choice for our second film of the evening. I always grew up thinking I am a Jewish child of a Holocaust surviving father. We killed all the 59 Japanese. Now I'm finding out a film my mother made would rewrite my entire life. The Man on the Bus from director Eve Ash is a story of desire, deception and discovery. When a stranger reaches out to Ash, an Australian psychologist and filmmaker, with the words, I think I may be your sister, she sets off on an exploration into her family history, particularly that of her mother, Martha, who was a Holocaust survivor who emigrated from Poland to Australia after marrying another Jewish survivor, Felix, at the end of the war, becoming the mother of two and a successful artist. But as Eve soon discovers, Martha lived a life of secrets culminating in Eve uncovering one which may change her life and how she sees herself forevermore. Stewie, did you find this bus ride efficient and hitting all the right stops or taking too many needless back streets and getting you to your destination late? Uh, like all bus trips, this was a little bit hectic, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little bit busy. Um, I chose this film because I love a good mystery and this is build as a mystery that mm -hmm. explores uh, this family's uh, quite traumatic history. 
Um, and I think it, that aspect, I think, is really interesting. But I think overall, uh, I, I think um, it lost me a little bit mm-hmm. uh, because the big reveal, the big discovery is unveiled, I think, within, the, within half an hour of the actual documentary. And when there is this big reveal, I noticed that there was still about 40 minutes left of the film to go. So I was like, where are we going? I, I really, um, I, I loved the backstory of the two parents. There was the moment when uh, we learned about her father um, and his experience in the war. And that was incredible. Um, that backstory I think was incredible and, and just demonstrating how that trauma and, um, grief can really I guess be fed into the next generation that aspect I found found quite powerful um but when it gets into you know we know who her father might be um that it became quite repetitive and just kind of her going to relatives going like look at this information look at this and it just I I think sort of having someone else come in and maybe edit the script or edit the final products uh, I think would have helped made it a little bit more maybe more sophisticated with the conclusion to the film um, I'd be interested to hear your other thought um, your thoughts on the film though I I'm pretty sure we're kind of on the same page Stewie like I thought it was a little kind of like the first 25 minutes was maybe unnecessary I don't know you know it does in a sense reveal what the secret is but it also doesn't really get into any of the grit of the family or what's going on it's just kind of like all set up um and so I really didn't get engaged until maybe 25 minutes in or something um and then I felt like a lot of it was repetition that we were just kind of getting them the same information here and there and I mean, I didn't even, I mean, it's a mystery, right? But I didn't even really feel like what we were uncovering was a mystery because it was offered to us so early on mm. that, that I yeah. kind of, I felt like it blurred the line between what this secret was and what was just something that was known already to, to everybody in the family. Um, and that was a little bit of a shame for me because, as you say, the backstory of her parents is so fascinating and and I kind of wanted to know you know it's kind of like it it allows her father Felix Ash to speak for a bit and then um and then moves on almost Mm. and I I really Mm. wanted maybe more of one or the other kind of elements of this film yeah I think one of the I think what's really interesting here is that when you do get the the director or the documentarian being personally involved in this exploration, sometimes maybe they can miss some really interesting and juicy bits that aren't explored because the mm. entire time I was picking up on these this tension between with her and her sister and then, you know, some other people that come along towards the end, no spoilers, um, and I was constantly interested about that tension, uh, about how this changing family structure and this changing nature of family really does for their relationships. And for me, I, I felt that they were, weren't really touched on. I, I, I don't feel like I need to say anything. Uh, you guys <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth. Everything, I completely agree with everything you're saying. I think it's 
a really interesting story that's just kind of clumsily put together. It's quite meandering. It's structured in a way that either gives away its secrets, as you say, gives away its secrets too early, or maximizes the least interesting aspects and minimizes the most interesting aspects. Like the stuff about her father is incredible. Like that feels like a documentary in itself. Mm. And it's five minutes of this film. And then, you know, but, and the repetition is sometimes, there's some, I hate to say it, but there's some sloppy filmmaking. Like there's a, there, speaking of repetition, at one point there's a meeting and there's a shot of her. <laughs> there's the same shot repeated four or five times in a two minute. And it's just, and it's like, what do you do? Like, I know you probably didn't get a lot of footage, but good Lord, there's got to be another one in there somewhere. Um, it's, I, I, and I feel like, also, a lot of the, the thread of the doc is meant to be how much it changed her, but I don't really get a sense of how much it did change her. I got a sense of her wonder and her confusion and finding this new family and everything, but in terms of what she thinks of herself now and her identity, I didn't really get an indication of that. I feel like everybody should be able and empowered to tell their own story, but at the same time, this would have benefited hugely from, one, an actor's narration, and yeah. two, from a director who's either more experienced or adept at unfolding mystery narratives. Because yeah. this is just, I think sometimes you can be too close to your own story. Uh, the structure of this is so higgledy-piggledy. If, if you bullet point the story out, it's, there's so many interesting discoveries and milestones. The film should not be as dull as it ends up being. And I think it's yeah. just, I think she's far too close to it. Yeah. Paul, and there was I, a, f- this, sorry, you go, Elvis. <laughs> I feel like this kind of narrative has been told, you know, someone kind of delving into their own life and trying to reflect on um, a family or trauma has to be, as you say, either kind of shaped by an external party Mm. or told in a more like essayistic form. So if if, if we were presented with a film essay that kind of, you know, narrated the response that this filmmaker had or this person had and the response of people around her and what she reflected on and how she grew then then it could have told the story in a much more I don't know, a much more engaging way yeah um and maybe you know a, a more cinematic way in a sense mm. whereas this really tried to do the documentary revelation thing um but because there was not that distance it, it didn't really manage to put itself together in quite the way that it intended. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, and there was another element that I I think I needed to spend more time really exploring because when we went into the, I guess, a lot of the historical component of you know, the, the Holocaust and, and her family, there were a few moments when I identified some very iconic moments of footage and and photographs and there were stories that were being told that sort of I knew weren't what was actually being depicted in some of the photographs there was the story of the mother and her child um, and the mother resisted a bit and that the child was I think killed as a result and there shows a photo of a mother and child where the story is not actually what they're telling so mm. I think sometimes some in the historical component I think a lot of the archival footage is maybe just a bit random and I know that feels quite awful to say given the the subject matter but um yeah I mean I found that a little it's a little disappointing mm. yeah I can't help but agree um 
Shout out, though, to uh, an actress named Eva Tokola, who plays the young Martha in the flashbacks, who's actually a friend of my partner and I. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite a surprise to see it. So it's like, oh, wow, that's that's Eva. Um, there you go, Paul. I did really like, so I don't know, I did really like the revelation in maybe the very final sequence of the film about because there's this kind of these um, recreations of a historical meeting threaded throughout the film. And I did like the revelation um, that they were actually, you know, in a sense being directed by somebody who was there at the mm. time. That was really very sweet to me. That was a great touch. That was really wonderful. Yeah. 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 yeah that, that was, uh, that was very cute. Um, that gentleman did get around. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> the man on the bus is now available to rent on the Melbourne documentary film festivals website until July 15. Just head to mdff.org.au and follow the links to their event bright viewing platform. Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Stewie Richards, Eloise Ross, and myself, the only non-doctor in the room, Paul Anthony Nelson. Those are the songs for us to make something that will sustain our air, our ocean, our land, to use it in a sustainable way through music, through sharing our culture. Small Island Big Song from Taiwanese producer Bao Bao Chen and Australian music producer and filmmaker Tim Cole is a multi-platform project uniting the seafaring cultures of the Pacific and Indian Oceans through songs, a contemporary and relevant musical statement from a region at the front line of the climate crisis. Chen and Cole have been recording and filming with over 100 musicians in nature across 16 island nations of the Pacific and Indian Oceans, culminating in an award-winning album, an online platform, an outreach program, a live concert that has toured around four continents, reaching over 170,000 people since its world premiere at South by Southwest 2018. And if that's not enough, a film directed by Cole, which we're discussing tonight. Eloise, did you find the big songs from these small islands a big or small delight? Gosh, um, I really liked this film. It was beautiful to just sit and absorb as an artifact, I guess. Um, there's no real story. There's no narrative. There's no narration. There's just uh, occasional translations of song lyrics and, I guess, um, in-text um, descriptions of things that are occurring in our current global climate crisis world. Um, and other than that, just images of... Um, places that aren't often seen in the West and um, songs and lyrics and voices from cultures that aren't really heard. And I really loved it. I had a beautiful time watching it. I feel like it's just something that I could kind of put on um, on repeat at my house uh, <laughs> on a nice day and just, you know, have a time. Just bliss out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, kind of like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know whether this comparison is, um, relevant, but something like Kiana Scutzi is a film that I would also put on and just kind of absorb via um, strange osmosis, and this is the same sort of thing. Stewie, did you get to see this? I did. I did get to see this, and I actually did go back and rewatch the start. So <laughs> <laughs> because I 
I finished it and immediately went back and watched the opening two songs again because I wanted to see how it opened um, because there is that really interesting bookmark of the um, sort of it starts with sort of a boat going out from the shore and it ends with the boat coming back which mm. I, I thought was a really nice touch I think the soundscapes in this are really well done um, and I think the the sound editing that is actually going on here is incredibly sophisticated there are some really lovely moments of quiet between the the, the stops on the journey uh, so we'll go from island to island and between the, between the songs there are these really nice quiet moments that very slowly build and transition into the next one. So there'll be like, uh, like, you know, cicadas or there'll be like sort of water kind of trickling and then that will slowly transition into the next song. Um, and my favourite moment was, I'm not sure what the song was, but there was uh, someone playing a pan flute I think was a pan flute uh, like instrument um, in this field and we heard uh, these kind of insects buzzing in the background and then you know that um, those sort of the sounds of the insects were actual recordings from 1991 and they're no longer present because of climate change which I thought was a really powerful kind of merging of past and present sort of images and sound which I thought was really quite incredible so this is a great documentary and that was a very like they were saying that uh, the rate of extinction for insects is eight times faster than any other animal mm. as well um and yeah i was quite stunned by that moment as well um yeah this is lovely and meditative and a, a, a very a creative response to the climate crisis um and how the wisdom of indigenous cultures and their kinship to the land can provide a guide through this if the west would only if capitalist cultures would only listen yeah um and there's a lot of that during the film there's a lot there's a lot of proverbs and 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 kind of local customs and rules sort of you know that come up on the screen as text because this is pretty pretty much an 84 minute music video for the and of of all of these acts um, with some, you know, interstitial philosophy from the cultures it covers um, in regard to sustaining communities and environments. There's one poignant line that particularly struck me right in the throat, and it's paraphrasing, but it's uh, one of the songs, It's I think it's the maybe the song we just played, but um, uh, sing your mother tongue as your language may not be around much longer. It will bring you comfort in faraway lands. Mm. And I thought that was just gorgeous. Um, and yeah, I completely agree about the sound design and the, and, and the cinematography is stunning as well. Yeah. It's it, quite breathtaking. Yeah. It's really quite... I, can, I can imagine, you know, seeing this in a cinema, we're all, we've all watched this at home, but, but the chance to see it in a cinema would have been a really fantastic one. Should we get it again um, mm. anytime soon? But I was reading about the the sound design and everything, and the filmmakers were saying that everything in the film was kind of recorded on this journey that they took through the island. So all of the sounds, um, nothing is kind of introduced, nothing is foreign. Everything was taken um, as part of this kind of you know organic portrait of the lands and of the ocean that they're that they're showing. Yeah, and the musicians themselves, um, 
you know, dictated where they wanted to be filmed and what instruments they wanted to play as well, mm. uh, which I thought was a really great touch. There's also some really great drone footage in this. And I know drone footage gets a bit naff and a bit overused in a lot of nature documentaries. Mm. But um, when, you know, when sort of documentaries, you know, film nature, I should say. Um, but there are some really incredible uh, sort of shots uh, using the drone in this film. Uh, and what I also loved as well is that as we go along the journey, increasingly we get a lot of uh, callbacks from previous songs as well, which I really like. Um, that was something else I noticed sort of as the film goes on, which I thought was very well done. Yeah, it's it's really it's really beautiful stuff, and I think yeah, I think it's the kind of film where if you saw it in a cinema, it would add an extra half star to your rating. It's because yeah. it, the, the 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 incredibly intricate sound design and the beautiful cinematography. I just like there was a point I was listening to my headphones. It's like, is it raining outside? Did the weather suddenly? No, no, it's just the <laughs> computer. <laughs> it's just incredibly evocative. But yes, there are, of course, um, there's a YouTube channel you, you can subscribe to for this um, for this project, which has a lot of the songs separated out into the individual music videos, and that sprawls out into the larger um, multi-platform project that this is. So it's absolutely worth um, jumping online and, and checking out all of the tendrils to where this extends. So... Small, Small Island, Big Song is uh, currently streaming, uh, currently available to rent, I should say, on the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's website until July 15. Just head to mdff.org.au to follow the links to their Eventbrite viewing platform. Now, um, I, I keep saying that because it's actually a little bit complicated when you go to the site. Um it's i know some folks who have had some issues with this um so you sort of go to the mdff site and click on the film you want to see and then it'll come up with a page and there won't seem and it's got a link saying view on eventbrite and then you go there and then you search for it sometimes it goes directly and sometimes you have to search for it and then from there you sort of view it via that platform and that's where you can uh rent the films it's a little bit of a workaround but hey this is a crazy brave new world we're all living in uh post-covid and it's really great to see a lot of festivals uh, doing digital streaming uh, for their uh, their festivals. I know the Sydney Film Festival did it as well. Yeah, um, as did yeah. St Kilda. And the Melbourne Queer Film Festival have announced a small uh, online festival that they'll be holding in a couple of weeks uh, from the 17th to the 19th, I believe, which Fantastic. is a package of four feature films and a package of Australian short films. Great. So Queer will be launching that in, uh, yeah, the Saturday, Friday week, yeah. Um, so you you are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. You've been joined by uh, Stewie Richards, Eloise Ross, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. And on tonight's Spotlight on the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, we uh, chatted to Ursula Woods, who uh, directed her, her short film that she directed, Clockumentary, which is a short mockumentary, is a, a screening at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. It was lovely to chat to her. We also uh, discussed the three features, Foreman versus Foreman, The Man on the Bus, and Small Island Big Song, which are all now available to rent on the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's website. And that ends on July 15th. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcast. 
Um, a thank you again to joining us, uh, Stewie. Uh, it's been thank you. a delight to have you around over the last... It's been great. It's like three of the last four weeks. Is that right? At uh, least the last maybe. two. Yeah, at least the like last that. two. Yeah. I might be here to stay. Who knows? <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> The, so one of the wonders of COVID, we could just have, you know, the, the gang in from wherever, even Adelaide. silver lining. <laughs> <laughs> and a huge thank you to you, Eloise, for making your primal screen debut and joining us. You're someone we've wanted to have on for a long while. Thank you so much for having me. I do listen um, and, you know, it's very exciting to imagine all of you guys in a studio or in this virtual arrangement that you have now. So it's been wonderful to be able to join you. It's been wonderful to have you, and hopefully this will not be the last time. And join us next week uh, when we will be looking at three films which as yet remain unconfirmed and mysterious. What will our theme be? We don't know yet. Check out our social media channels this week. So if you jump onto Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and search for Primal Screen, you will find us. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast. Killer Carl Chapman for panelling and providing producing assistance for our show. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 